Well, brothers and sisters, good evening. It's great to be here in the household of God, opening God's Word to us. So do have your Bibles open there or your journals um, at 1 Timothy chapter 5. We've been going through 1 Timothy for a while now, and, and I hope that you've been blessed by what the Lord has for us. There's, there's certainly lots of challenges, lots of things beyond our cultural comfort zone. So let's just take a second before we come to the text to pray for discernment. Lord God, we ask that you open your word to us this evening, soften our hearts, enliven our minds, and bring us to worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, if you were here, Stuart began to explain chapter 5 for us. This, this chapter where we get instructions on how to relate to specific groups within the household of God so that we guard our family from controversy. Or as Stuart put it, and, and if you've got your journals, write this down at the top of chapter 5 because it's just oh, so helpful. We don't want to unpreach by our culture the gospel that we preach in our pulpits. We don't want to unpreach by our culture the gospel that we preach in our pulpits. So what Paul is concerned about here is that the household of God acts in such a way that reflects something of God's character that that it provides evidence for what is being preached, that lives are changed, and those looking in don't have justifiable grounds for slander. Now, the world will always hate us, so it's not about being really nice. It's about being called a, a witness, that are, are the, being a witness to our very nature as the called out ones. So the world should look in, and, and whatever value they put upon us, just have to admit that we are different, that we don't live like the world. In, in recent times, we've had so many stories of celebrity pastors falling to one thing or another, and the world looks in on that and, and thinks that the church is just, just a business, hypocrites, not really radically changed people. And so they think, if Christ hasn't really made a difference to them, why would he do anything for us? Well, Paul's concern in this chapter is that, is that people can't look into the church on our family and see hypocrites who are just like the world. When I became a Christian at, at 19, I stopped drinking, not because there's anything wrong with it, but just because I saw all the guys who claimed to be Christian but were out with me on the Friday and Saturday night out boozing as well. And I knew that that, that now that I was a Christian, it, it had to mean something. It had to change me in some way. Now, I'm careful. I'm not using that as an example to, to follow, and we, we certainly don't want to just try and do everything that we can to be different for the sake of being different or, or legalistic in, in how we say that we are different. But we do have to keep in mind that as we read these verses, that, that how we treat people in here how we live as God's family needs to be affected by what we believe. Our lives need to bear out what we believe. And, and the test of that is, is people looking in from the outside and saying, well, they're different. Again, not, not just for the sake of being different, but so that when we say that we are the called out ones, that it means something. That Christ's sacrifice has actually affected us. We don't want to unpreach by our culture this gospel of transformative grace that we preach 
in our pulpits. And so Stuart showed us how we care for widows, the, the weakest in our society, and how that is a reflection of the care that we have received from God. And that being a close member of a family full of affection and care that actually means something. That when we say that we are for the least, the last, and the lost, our practice bears that out. So that's the context of, of chapter 5 here. We're in a discussion on, on how to show true affection and care to a couple of different groups within the church. Last week is widows. This week, it's going to be the elders. So elders, you've been getting a fair bit of challenge so far in our series. We, we've talked an awful lot about your responsibilities towards us. Tonight, we're going to think a little bit about our responsibilities towards you. So let, let's dive in. In your journals, if you can, group together for me verses 18, 17 and 18. That's going to be about honoring the elders. Then verse 19, about how we talk about elders. And then verse 20, about how we keep elders accountable. Now, all that is going to tell us what we are to do as we relate to elders, and then the rest of the passage gives us a framework for how we are going to do that. So let's start now with, with what we are to do. Verse 17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work in preaching and teaching. So the first thing to note here is that they aren't worthy of honor just because we have elected them. It's not the office that we are honoring here, although that, that might well be appropriate. But rather, it's those who discharge their duties well. Those that are, that are fighting the battle well, like we said in chapter 1. Those that are exemplifying the characteristics in chapter 3 that, that God has ordained to build His church. So, so do this when we think about your elder, or any elder here. Maybe, maybe write their name above verse 17 in your journals there. And, and now ask yourself, are they discharging their duties well? Are they exhibiting the characteristics that Paul says an elder should? And now, if you've said yes to that, then this verse obliges you to honor them in some way. The NIV our reading here sort of says that, the, that they are worthy of honor, but, but the Greek is actually an imperative. So, so Paul is commanding this here, honor them. And for us hearing that, we, we might wonder, well, just how do we honor someone? It's not the kind of a normal thing that we have language for here, is it? We have a, a strange Northern Irish thing where we can feel uncomfortable with any kind of praise or recognition whatsoever. So when someone says something nice, we tend to just joke it off. Or we equate honoring someone with some kind of emotional sentimentality that we just aren't comfortable with, so we downplay it as, as much as possible to make it palatable. And that, that culture, which is so ingrained in us here, actually makes it hard for us to show honor. But, but I think there are ways that we can do this. So, so maybe you have the gift of hospitality and, and just show love by forcing as much food on people as, as you possibly can. Well, then you might want to show honor by having your elder and their family right over for dinner sometime. Maybe you have the gift of encouragement and, and can honor your elder through a kind word or, or writing them a letter. That would be an amazing thing for them to get. 
maybe you know your elder well and, and, and just know what they would appreciate it, what would be appropriate in that situation for them. And if something has just jumped into your mind as I've been saying that, write that down so that you don't forget it. You can remember to go and do that. But I want to suggest something else that I think will, will actually honor them in, in a way that even us emotionally repressed Northern Irish people can, can get behind. And that is by recognizing the role that God has called our elders to. Recognizing that, that our ruling elders have a responsibility for our souls. And so you can honor your elder by, by realizing that, that when they visit with you and open the word, they are giving you something. They, they are ministering to you. They aren't just coming around so that you feel connected in. They, they, they don't visit you because you've put your offering in and that's, that's part of the subscription that you get a wee visit every now and then. They visit you because they are responsible for the care of your soul. They will give an account before God about how they have led his church. And as under shepherds, they will report back to the good shepherd how they have looked after his flock. And so they are concerned for the health of his sheep. And so they, they pray for you, they visit you, and, and if you let them, they will disciple you and bring you closer to Christ. And I think that the best way to honor them is to, is to just recognize what they are doing to be receptive to their input in your lives. And if you're not sure how to do that, then, then just by start by, just by making easy on them for to come in and, and have spiritual conversations. Don't make them jump through hoops or unravel some puzzle to see how you're doing spiritually. Just tell them. Let them minister to you. If you're hurting, tell them. If you're worried, ask them to pray for you. If you're joyous, then share that joy with them. Your elders are not volunteers to assist the minister in what's going on. They are those that Christ has ordained to rule the church. And so appreciate them. Encourage them in their work. Show them honor. Now, just a quick verse note about verse 18. This, this is talking about paying those in full-time service. And it's great to preach this while I'm not an elder because you don't have to worry, I'm going I'm to whip the plate out here and do a, wee, a quick whip around. We live in a different time um, to the Timothy's church and our system operates very differently. And, and the way that we fulfill this verse is, is through giving to the United Appeal. So, so do give generously there. But I have been in places where I've had to preach in this because the church isn't paying their pastor. And so to an onlooking world, it showed them that they didn't really value the teaching ministry. They, they, they weren't willing to pay for it. So even if the application to, to giving isn't as direct to us here as it would be at the other places in the world, it's still relevant to us in how we value the teaching that we receive, how we prepare ourselves to hear the world, word preached, how we, how we listen, how we respond to what is being said here. But, but I do want to keep moving. Verse 19 lays out the next way of relating. To not slander the elders. And basically, if you read that there, you'll see that it lays out a pattern of Mosaic law where you couldn't just go about and slandering people. You couldn't accuse someone in a your word against mine type of way. And so what Paul is trying to get Timothy to do is to start a culture 
where people are careful about how they talk about their elders. So not in a, a distant, formal way, but, but a way that, that doesn't just throw them under the bus at any opportunity we get. So our responsibilities toward elders include honoring them, supporting them, and not slandering them. But in verse 20, we get another responsibility which might not be as comfortable for our elders to hear. Those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone. Now, we, we do have to be careful here because the, the sense is this isn't just a one-off thing that you see in someone's life. It's a, it's a continuous pattern that is displayed in their lives that persists even after the evidence of two or three witnesses being brought. So, so don't go shouting about your elder in front of everyone just yet. Um, there is an order in the household of God. But it is an order that doesn't shy away from honest, humble, loving discipline. Because although the elders are responsible for the care of our souls, we are still our brother's keeper. We still have responsibilities towards them to make sure that they stay on the path to life. And part of that responsibility is to reprove them, to rebuke them when they are sinning, both so that they will stop it and, and so that others don't follow along that path. So don't forget the, the context of, of 1 Timothy here where, where false teachers are coming in. So this is part of the community's inbuilt system to maintain healthy practice and doctrine. This is part of the way that, that, that others don't go off after godless myths and false doctrines because they see that how we live is serious and it does matter. We relate to our elders with, with honor but not blind subservience. We are still required to point them to God when they need it. So that's what our passage tells us to do, how we are to relate to our elders. But, but we need to think a little bit about why Paul commands this. It's easy to see from the, the, the widows how supporting them showed the affection and the care, how the church was, was different from the world, how the, the called out ones lived according to different principles. But how does that relate to the, the treatment of elders? How does the treatment of elders show that same thing? Well, it, it shows a, a submission to authority rather than just claiming our rights, a, a willingness to be disciplined rather than always having to, to lead an openness to, to being wrong rather than an impression of invincibility. But, but most of all, I think that it shows us that, that, that we as Christians trust in, a, in, in the way that God has called us to live far more than we trust the pattern of this world. So in electing elders based upon their godly character traits over what the world sees as capacity, we are demonstrating that we trust in God's leading over pragmatic considerations. Think about the early church slaves were suddenly equal to their masters. In, in some situations, they might have actually had some level of spiritual authority over them. Here, it used to be the bank managers who were trusted for everything, even beyond their field of, of expertise. Now, today, it's the, the men and women in white coats, the, the scientists and, and the doctors who are viewed as being authorities in, in almost everything in the world. But in here, the homeless man could be the one that we listen to. In here, we could sit 
at the feet of the uneducated and take notes in our Bibles. Because what we value is not what the world values. We don't value capacity, but character. Not fantastic achievements, but faithfulness. Paul wants us to relate to our elders in a way that that shows the watching world that, that we value the things that God values over the things that the world does. That, that our belief about God and the, and the church shape our practice, and, and our practice deepens that belief. That our culture preaches the same truths that come from our pulpit. And this is so important for us to get because unless our practice is reinforcing our beliefs, we will end up in hypocrisy or a dead traditionalism that is just about the worship of ashes. How we relate to the the weakest among us, the the, the widows from last week, or those in authority over us, either stems from perceptions that we are gained from the world or from the Word. And what we lean into will be determined by what we value. And so why do we act like this? So the gospel is seen to be real and effective and not discredited by our actions. So we have a responsibility toward elders, and we are to act like that in order to to reinforce and and to cement in our hearts valuing the things of God rather than the things of this world. But Paul also has some advice from Timothy for how that we can foster this type of culture. Verse 21 says this, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. So it's a a big charge, right? This This should sound serious to us to keep these instructions and underline this bit, without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. So what Paul is saying is that if Timothy is going to institute this kind of culture, it has to be done without showing partiality, without being able to be accused of favoritism. That's the point of verse 22 there as well. Because laying hands on people in 1 Timothy means electing people to offices. So so Timothy shouldn't just go on and elect someone because he likes them or knows them or for some other reason. He shouldn't rush to that kind of decision in case he he raises up someone who isn't ready, who who doesn't have the right characteristics, and so in the end ends up sinning in some way. In that case, Paul says that Timothy is actually going to share in the guilt. And so he needs to elect elders and deacons without partiality to keep himself free of that guilt or, or pure as it's put here. Now, really quickly, you might think this is strange. There's a little aside in verse 23. It's almost like Paul thinks, whilst we're on the topic of of keeping pure, here's something that you might be struggling with unnecessarily. So maybe Timothy is holding some principle about drink for, um, out of some mistaken concern for purity, and Paul just takes this opportunity to correct him. But then he returns to his warning that some people's sins are hard to see. And so Timothy doesn't want to just be blinded by favoritism or rush too quickly. Okay, so what Paul is getting at is that we want a culture where we value the things of God rather than the world. And if we want that, then we have to act in a way that doesn't show the partiality or the favoritism that marks out the world. The household of God isn't to judge each other as the world does. And if we do, if we act like the world in how we value one another, then all this stuff about how we treat one another will just sort of fall apart. 
So someone looking in shouldn't be able to accuse Session of just being Christoph's cronies, or, or one person just get, always gets their way regardless of what they say. Think, think to Paul and the Bereans. Here's an apostle of Christ comes to them, and they say, oh, well, thank you very much for that. Please wait there a second whilst we go and check that with Scripture. That is the kind of community that we can say is, is formed by the Bible. That, that isn't holding man up in any way, not being led by a cult of personality or, or the shifting ideas of culture or looking at people based upon what they can do for us. Instead, it's a community marked by how it looks at things through scriptural lenses. And Paul is so strong in this so that when we look at our elders, we can trust that they want our best. We can trust that the decisions made about the church by the elders aren't just someone's opinions pushed through, but the result of prayerful discernment and searching of the Scriptures. And when we trust that, then how easy will it be for us to honor them, to speak well of them, and to know that if there is an issue, that we can come to them as brothers and sisters, holding them accountable by the Word of God without jeopardizing our relationship. So there is a heavy weight laid upon elders and, and all of us who serve in committees or in any kind of capacity that we serve and lead without partiality so that our people can know that we are submitting ourselves to Jesus and not our own personal desires. We have to be people who, in all that we do, live for Jesus above all else. And if we want our lives to show our nature as the called out ones, if we want our practice to reflect what we preach in the gospel, then we have to look at people how God does. We need to let His rule be a banner above all else. We have to be a people who come under what God has declared so that we treat one another as God would have us. So that when the world looks in and says something, they know that it's different here. That that gospel they're preaching actually means something. In a few minutes, you can see we're, we're going to take communion together. And we will enact this sign and seal of what Christ has done for us. We will proclaim by our actions in taking the bread and the wine that Christ has come into our lives. It's, it's a sign of the many here becoming one as we show that we are united to Christ. Our lives have been transformed. It's a reminder to us that, that we were sinners, that we were dead in our sin and not even able to make the choice to follow Christ. But by His grace, we were raised to life with Him. And one of the things that we say as part of the service is that if you don't yet know Christ, then, then just let this pass by you. Because this is a family meal. This is for the called out ones. There's not many other times in our lives when non-Christians can see so clearly that we are a people here, that it does mean something to be in the church family. But what chapter 5 has told us is that that should be obvious in how we treat one another all the time. The people can look in on the church and know that something has happened to these people to transform them so completely. That in how we treat the, the weakest of us, how we treat those in authority, no matter what we do, we do it for God's glory and not for our own. Because when we preach that Christ has saved us, when we say that He has united us in His blood 
and adopted us into one family. It is our culture that provides the evidence for that. It is our culture that makes this glorious gospel seem true to the outsider. But all of that will only happen when we ourselves are captivated by God's grace. When we are struck, like like Paul was in chapter 1, that we are the foremost of sinners. But the Christ came into the world to save sinners. And when we survey that wondrous cross, nothing in this world holds any temptation in comparison to the weight of glory that we see there. The realization that that event is is so life-changing that that it changes what we value now, how we treat people, because we have been utterly transformed by His grace. 